McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brobble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first installment of the Truth and Justice follow-up episodes. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. Before we get started today, I want to take just a minute and explain to you guys how this is going to work moving forward. As you all know, the Truth and Justice episodes drop on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. From this week going forward, there will be a second episode every week, and that will be the follow-up episode. The follow-up episodes will drop on Friday mornings at 6 a.m., just in time for that Friday morning commute. This week is a little bit off because I forgot to announce this on Sunday morning's episode, so we pushed the recording back one day. But typically, this is the way it's going to work. The Truth and Justice episode will drop on Sunday morning. You'll have Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday to listen to the episode. And then on Tuesday evenings, we're going to open up the phone lines from 7 to 8 p.m., This is our opportunity to get feedback and follow-up questions, thoughts, and theories from all of you, the listeners, so that the main episodes can be full of just new content for each episode. We're going to try to keep the follow-up episodes relatively short, around a half hour, 35 minutes or so, and the format will be two or three phone calls and responses from me, and then we'll answer questions from email, Facebook, and Twitter. In order for us to break down which emails and tweets and Facebook posts are for the follow-up show, we're going to ask you to use the hashtag of the episode number that you're responding to. So for example, on Sunday, two days from now, we're going to drop episode 242. After you listen to 242, if you have a tweet that you want read on the air in the follow-up episode, or an email, or a Facebook response or post, use the hashtag 242. So that means even with your emails, in the subject line, put hashtag 242. And then we'll know that that's an email that you want read on the air. Now, this is no big deal for Twitter users since you're limited to 140 characters anyway. But for those of you that are sending your comments or questions or theories through Facebook or email, keep in mind that we want to keep these short. So if you want your email or Facebook message read on the air, don't send us a five-page dissertation on what you think. Try to be brief and to the point. So just so all of you know, our procedure will be on Tuesday morning, we're going to search the hashtag for that episode number on both Facebook and Twitter. We're going to go through our emails and look for that hashtag. We're going to pick out a couple of emails, a couple of tweets, and a couple of Facebook posts. And Mike and I will have a conversation about those in the second segment of the follow-up episodes for Friday mornings. So moving forward, we may change up a few things. This is kind of a learning process for us, but I was really feeling like we were losing the connection with you, the listeners, because we've had so much content for this case. And I'm sure we will for the next case and the case after that and the case after that. So this is the opportunity for you to still be involved and for me to still get your feedback right on the air. So now that you know the plan and the procedure, we're going to get right into the 241 follow-up episode where we're going to start with your calls. All right, I am on the air with Chelsea from Minnesota. How are you doing today, Chelsea? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a rainy night and the Cubs are on in an hour, so we can get all these calls out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting for baseball, right? Yeah. Mike says you, you actually have a question about the Heyman Lee case. Okay. I want to see what you thought about this. So a while ago when Jim Clemente did the profile on Hayes' murder, he mentioned that because the body was hidden away that it indicated that it must have been somebody that knew her that needed to cover up the murder 
And then he made one small little addition to that and said, or it's a serial killer working the neighborhood who doesn't want to get caught. And I thought that that little line really stood out to me because we know that Roy Davis had killed Jada Lambert seven or eight months before that. Mm-hmm. We know Jada, Roy, and Hay all lived in the same neighborhood. Jada and Hay went to the same school, and there were a lot of similarities between Jada's murder and Hay's murder. And I wanted to know if that's ever been brought to your attention before or if you did notice that and kind of what you thought about it. Um, it has. And so what Jim does with profiling is basically you're just trying to put yourself in the mind of a killer, the criminal's mindset. None of these things are hard and fast rules. They're they're observations and predictions and thoughts on probability. None of it is definitive. So Jim's train of logic there is that if you put yourself in the mind of a person who kills someone, and so say Heyman Lee, for example, there's always some kind of motive for killing someone. You know, that motive could be robbery, it could be rape, it could be holding someone for ransom, things that might turn into a murder. And so mm-hmm. what he was saying, if there was, say, a random third party, we'll come back to Roy Davis, and let's talk about Mr. S for a second as an example. This is not a guy, clearly not a serial killer. You know, that doesn't mean that he is not capable of this, but his biggest offense is he likes to be naked in front of people. If he all of a sudden decides to kill Heyman Lee, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would he want to kill her? Did he want to rape her? Well, that wasn't the case in Hayes' case. Did he want to rob her? Again, not the case. There was nothing missing. Other Her, her wallet was taken from her, but she didn't really have any money. But she had jewelry left on her body and things like that. None of that was taken. She had a car. That's a great thing to steal. All of that was left behind. So sexual assault, robbery don't seem to be the motive. So it's hard to figure out why that person would just come and kill her. So that's why Jim said, unless, and he kind of said it kind of in passing, unless you have a serial killer working the area. And the reason for that is if you look at the flip side of that and you look at someone who has a known relationship with the victim, like in Hayes' case, and not only a known relationship, but someone who is known to be with the victim at the time that they're killed. So people are expecting. So let's say... The two people that we kind of narrowed down to were, say, like Don and and Adnan. So if, say, for example, Don had made plans with her, one of the theories people have is maybe Don texted her and said, hey, will you meet me here? Well, Don then might assume that Hay told her friends that she was going to meet Don. So if things go wrong, now all of a sudden she's dead. He knows that all of her friends know that she was with him. So if she's dead, he's going to be the first person they're going to look at. That is the criminal mindset that Jim was talking about, where then the response to that is not just I need to conceal or move the body or remove it from a location, but I need to hide it. I need people to not know that she's dead. I need people to think that she ran away because wherever her body is found, if people know that she was going to be with him, then if she's found dead, they're still going to look at him, you know, whether her body's found in Lincoln Park or a hotel or on the side of the road somewhere. He was the mm-hmm. person she was supposed to be with. So a person in that situation is going to not only move the body from a place where he's known to be, but is also going to try to hide the body in hopes that it won't be discovered. Because if anyone finds out that she's dead, then they're going to go straight to him. That's what Jim was talking about, why part of the profile is looking at the crime scene, how far her body was moved, the attempted concealment, you know, burying the body. You know, moving it is one thing, but burying the body. That is an attempt for people not to know that she's dead. In my opinion, if you're looking at a serial killer, you know, what Jim was mentioning was a serial killer that's like moving across the United States doesn't care. You know, a random third party, just say somebody comes across her and robs her steals her necklace and her purse, and kills her. Well, that person is not going to take the risk of hanging around the body, moving, certainly not putting the body into a vehicle and driving across town with the body in the vehicle, and then spending you know an hour or however long it takes to dig a hole and bury all that time. is just potential time for them to get caught. Because the criminal mindset there, if you're this random person, is no one has any idea that I was around this girl. Nobody saw me. Nobody nobody knows that there were plans because there weren't plans. So if her body is found dead, no one's going to be looking at me. 
you know, unless they find forensic evidence. So typically what we see, and I say typically what we see is the criminal behavior there is get the hell away from the body. The deed's been done, get away from it and get out of there. But if you have a serial killer that was, and that's where you mentioned Roy Davis, that he killed Jada Lambert. So say Roy Davis was working the area and, you know, he had an MO and a signature and he was killing Asian girls by strangulation. And that's, that, that was his MO and how, he, and how he did things. And he wanted to continue to kill people right near his house. Then there would be certainly an attempt to hide the body, but it, it doesn't quite make a lot of sense because obviously if you're taking high school age girls and killing them, it's not like people aren't going to notice they're gone. You know, and, and and they might think one ran away, but two, then there's going to be a problem. That's why Jim was saying that because it is it is definitely a possibility, and there were some similarities with Jada Lambert's case. I mean, the differences were we have clear motive in Jada Lambert's case. Jada Lambert was raped, you know, so there was a there there you can see a motive for that killing. It wasn't just a serial. I just have the desire, you know, a psychopath that has a desire to kill someone. It was motivated by rape, and then when the rape was over, Jada knew who Roy Davis was, and so he killed her so that she couldn't tell on him, you know, because he he's, he would have went to jail, and, and that's and that's what you would expect in that situation. So you see that there's a clear motive there with Hayes it, with the serial killer. It's really difficult to, I mean, it would literally have to be someone who is just a serial killer, a psychopath who just I have to strangle an Asian girl today, and just went and strangled her, and doesn't care about robbing her, doesn't care about sexual assault or anything like that. And so that part really, and, and they may seem like subtle differences, but when you get back to the criminal mindset, it's a pretty significant difference there. Okay. Weren't the results of whether Hay was raped or not kind of inconclusive because of how later on they found her? There's a lot of speculation that, that some people have that say, well, it, it is inconclusive. The reality is the medical examiner's report says there was no spermatozoa found in her there was no evidence of tearing or bruising that you typically see from a rape. And, you know, she was found dressed, yet her, her clothing, was like her skirt was kind of pulled up over her and so was her shirt. My personal theory after viewing the, the crime scene photos is that that was due to being drugged, like if she was being drugged by her feet into the hole. Sure. That's just, that's just a theory, though. But you have a skirt pantyhose or stockings or like I always get I always say the wrong word and everybody tells me about it so whatever the word you use for the nylons that people put on uh, but she had a skirt nylons and underwear all on and in order on her body so if it was if there was a sexual assault that would mean that the person took those off without tearing any of them raped her and then killed her and then reclothed her and, and as I've said on the show before as a man who has a stepdaughter and nieces, I've, I've never dealt with this with my stepdaughter because she was older when I came into the picture. But my little niece, I remember that, that nylons were like kryptonite to me, like to, to, for me to try to figure out how to get those. So I can't see a man going through that step. So you could say when people say it's inconclusive, all I think all that's really inconclusive is, is there a set of circumstances that could be possible that she was raped and that you have to say, yes, I guess, you know, someone could have have removed her clothes without breaking them and raped her very gently enough not to you know, cause any tearing or bruising and wore a condom and there was no semen, there was no pubic hairs, there was nothing found on her body, then killed her, then took the time to reclothe her, including her pantyhose, put all that back together and then move the body. Is that possible? Yes. Is that probable? In my opinion, no, it's no, it's not. And so that, that that's why that doesn't really fit with, you know, Roy Davis, as far as we know, was not a serial killer, you know, and, and then and then the other one is, you know, Ronald Lee Moore. And and he was many people wondered if he was a serial killer and his his crimes were all very, very different. I mean, he broke into people's houses to women's houses and brutally beat them. I mean, beat them with with baseball bats and, and sticks and furniture raped them i mean horribly the worst rape you can imagine oftentimes with objects and things like that and then proceeded to rob them of everything they owned in their house it's a very very different crime than uh, than what happened to Heyman lee and also when they, when he was done because he was unknown he had no known relationship to the victim he just left every time no attempt to conceal the crime scene no attempt to conceal the body he just took their stereo and their TV and all their valuables and left. So, so in, in my in my opinion, 
I think still the most likely scenario is that Jim's initial pre- preliminary profile was was spot on that you're likely looking for someone who had not only a known relationship with Hay, but someone that was known to be, at least in their mind, they were known to be with Hay at the time she was killed. Does that make sense to you? Definitely makes sense. I've just been itching to talk about this, and I'm glad I finally got to ask, and now I need to come up with a new theory. (laughs) There you go. And as a follow-up to that, that a lot of people are constantly asking me, when's Jen coming back on the show? And yeah, at the beginning, Jim was just very, very busy, had a lot of other stuff going on, and, and he was unavailable. Uh, what's going on now, though, is since Adnan's conviction was vacated and he has potentially a new trial coming, now it's at a point where we're not going to be you know, getting into and discussing any further anything about the case. I think that if you hear from Jim again, it would more likely be at a trial than it would be here. So that that's that's just, I don't know if you call it journalistic ethics or whatever, on my part. At this point, I don't want to bring anything else in that that could jeopardize Adnan's case uh, because it is now an open and active case again. So that's why Jim hasn't been back. Sure. Well, I'm excited to hear his take on the other cases we hear, and I know that Laura talked about doing one. So I don't know about anyone else, but I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, hey, Chelsea, thank you so much for calling in, and maybe we'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thanks, Bob. Yep. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, I am on the line with Sarah from Michigan. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good, how are you? I'm doing really well. Mike tells me that you're from the Detroit area. Yeah, Southfield, Michigan, actually. Awesome. Uh, Tigers fan? Yeah. Bummer, huh? Go Cubs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you that are not familiar with the geography of Michigan, uh, Sarah and I are on opposite sides of the state. I'm over by Chicago, and she's over by Detroit. So I'm having a better night than she is. Yes, very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Mike tells me that you had a question about the Anon case. Yeah, I just was wondering if you were going to do an episode or like a part of an episode on the bail motion that just happened. Um, Well, uh, how about we do it right now? Okay. <laughs> there's not um I have been <laughs> I have been uh thinking about how to kind of work that into an episode uh but there's not there's not a whole lot there for a whole thing and it didn't really fit with the content we were talking about so this the this follow-up episodes are kind of a perfect spot for it. I was out on assignment all week last week when the bail motion came in. I did read it, but I haven't had too much time to dig too deeply into it. Uh but for those of you that are, are not aware Last week, Anand's lawyer, Justin Brown, filed a motion for bail requesting for Anand to be released in the time they're waiting to find out what happens with the appeals. And then if the state decides to retry him, all of that's going to take time. And what they're asking for is for Anand to be able to, to wait that time out at home rather than in prison. Or my big concern is that in the meantime, since he's no longer convicted, that they'll move him out of the prison into a county jail, which would be horrible. He has a much better life in the prison than he would in the county jail. In the motion, it says that uh, they are prepared, Anand's uh, supporters are prepared to pay $1 million. And also, and, and this is significant, that I believe it said several people, I don't remember if it said a number, but several people are willing to pledge their real property or their real estate for his bond. So what that means is, and that's and the reason they put that in there is because what the judge is looking at is, is this person a flight risk? If we let them out to wait a, await a trial... Are they going to flee to go somewhere else? Well, in Anand's case, that actually all of his supporters could prove to be kind of a, a hindrance to him. So most people, to raise a million dollars means people have a lot of money on the line, and he would be costing people lots and lots of money if he were to flee. But in Anand's, in Anand's case, the judge will know that there's literally millions of supporters for him. <laughs> And so what that yeah. what that could mean, and it doesn't, I don't think it does. I think that uh, Adnan's legal team and his family have a, a small group of people that are contributing. But what that could mean is that, you know, they could put up a Patreon page and say, please, will every listener of Undisclosed pledge $1? And everybody pledges $1 and bam, they've got a million bucks. And so if Adnan were then to flee, which I mean, obviously he's not going to, I don't think the, the man, I believe, thoroughly is innocent. And if nothing else, wants to go in that ju- into that courtroom and prove his innocence. The devil's advocate side of that could say, well, they could collect a million dollars and then he could flee. And all it's going to do is cost a million people one dollar. And so, you know, so there's no real risk there for him. That's why you see in that bill motion where they said several people are pledging their real property. So they're saying not only will we give you a million dollars for bail, 
but I'm going to pledge my house. Several people, even if everybody only contributed $1, if he were to flee, then these people would lose their homes. And so that that is basically just trying to convince the judge that, look, he's not going anywhere, and there is a huge amount of assets that are on the line to keep him here. Because he, in his case, he just has so many supporters that money really doesn't mean anything because there's too many people. That was the one thing that I found very significant in there. And the other one that everybody was really excited about, and this is the part I haven't had much time to research yet, is it was pointed out in the bail memorandum that Jay Wilds has had a pretty prolific criminal history after Heyman Lee's murder. And I won, I think, maybe two times he was it was actually cited that he was arrested or the police were called on him for a complaint for attempting to strangle someone. That really got everybody everybody excited about that. I guess I don't know if excited is the right word, but got everybody very interested in it. So the thing with with Jay is what they were the reason they were pointing out Jay's criminal history, including the fact that he attempted to strangle someone, is it's just more you know the other half of uh, getting bail is not only to convince the judge that you know we have enough assets on the line that he's not going to go anywhere, but the other side of that is to convince the judge that listen. The man is actually innocent. He wants to prove his case. And the reason they were throwing all of that in there about Jay is so that they can, they're trying to show the judge, listen, we have someone who has testified at court and told the police, knows everything about the crime. He knows how she was killed, where she was buried. He knew where the car was. And oh, by the way, he has a violent history after this, including attempted strangulation. Whereas if you look at Adnan, this was the only incident of violence in his life, and even in prison for 17 years now, he's never had an incidence of violence in prison. It's a two-pronged approach. One, to show that we have the assets to keep him here, and two, the fact that you should let him out. He's not a risk. He does not have a violent history, and it's very likely he's innocent. So I guess it's three prongs, because look, here is the guy who most likely did it. Now, I mean, you all know my viewpoint on this. I don't believe that Jay actually did it. But that's that's beyond the point. You know, the, the judge doesn't care what you know Jim Clemente said about the crime scene profile or about when they review the statements and think that he actually knows nothing about the crime. You know, they don't care about what was said on a podcast about that. They're just looking at the facts of the case and, when, and and they can only go off the record. And the record shows that Jay knew everything about this crime and Anon just had his conviction thrown out. Uh, because uh, there was there's really no evidence against him on the crime. So he's a better suspect at this point than Adnan, even. So exactly, and that's exactly what what they're trying to get across is that Jay is a better suspect. Adnan didn't do it. He has no history of violence compared to Jay, especially. And we have so much on the line. If he were to flee, he's not going anywhere. Right. So there you go. There is your partial episode on the Adnan Syed bail motion. <laughs> Thank you very much. I listened to the undisclosed episode, but sometimes they're so like lawyery that I'm like, wait, I have to listen to it several times right. to break it down. <laughs> they're pretty sharp so over you. there at undisclosed. You can come down here and we'll, <laughs> Mike and I will dumb it down for you, Chelsea. No problem. We got this. <laughs> it goes right down to our level. <laughs> right. Thank right. you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Chelsea. Have a great night. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right. Okay, our last caller of the day, I am on the phone with Christy from Florida. How you doing tonight, Christy? I'm great, Bob. How are you? Doing really well. All right. What's your question? Okay, well, my question is, um, since you are working a lot down in Texas, which is a very difficult situation because they are very old school down there, are you finding, now that you've been able to get Dobbs to actually give you an interview, that they are possibly you know, looking to really look into these, you know, exonerating some of these people in these old cases where they just got it wrong and admitting it and moving on, especially now that there's integrity units coming up everywhere, a new show called Conviction, which, by the way, is great. Are you finding that you're, that they're getting a little bit looser with that? Or are they be, you know, are they coming around at all? Or are we just literally going to have to wait until all of the, because, you know, these people have been there for so long, you know, are they going to have to all die before the new people come in and say, you know what, it's okay, let's let's admit it, let's move on? Well, first of all, uh, prosecutors don't die in Smith County. They spawn new prosecutors. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, that but, is true. But in all seriousness, to answer your question, um, I, I honestly, 
hope that they are, are making a turn. And, and I like to hope that what we're doing is playing a part in that. You know, one of the cogs in the Smith County machine for all these years has been the media. You know, the fact that no matter what they did in Smith County, good or bad, and they've done some great things. I talked to, I've talked to several, you know, attorneys and people from Texas that have worked with Smith County and said they're great. But then we have people, it, it seems to be the minorities and the underclass that, that just get railroaded and bullied by that system. So, uh-huh. you know, so, the, so there is, we know that there are clearly long-term systematic problems in Smith County, but... I, I, I like to think that the fact that literally for the first time ever, people are reporting on what's happening in Smith County and people are paying attention. I mean, I mean, Smith County has a population or Tyler, Texas has a population of 100,000 people and their media uh-huh. has never reported on anything they've done wrong. As far as those 100,000 people are concerned, they're great, except for if you're one of the people who have been railroaded by the system or have been affected by that. But those people uh-huh. live on the other side of the tracks. Right. We are reporting on everything that's happened there and everything that's continuing to happen there. And, you know, we have an audience that's almost triple the population of their area. And people are writing letters and emails and and, and really ah. putting pressure on them. And, and it's having an effect locally. You know, when I go to Tyler now on the trips, when I announce the fact that I'm going to be there. You know, I have uh-huh. we'll have fan meetups and we'll have tons of people that'll show up. I've got I, I have a list of resources from Tyler, Texas. Anything I need in that town, there are people there that can do it for me. So there's there there it's spreading locally and it's putting some pressure on them. That being said, right. I don't know if it is truly affecting them or if if it's just a perception thing, but they clearly don't like. I mean, let's be honest. I've been a dick to uh, Matt Bingham <laughs> and David Dobbs and all all these guys, and, and 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 I'll stand by it. You know, for for the things that they have done, but clearly, justly. Yeah, and that's the thing. You for, know, I mean, for the things that they have done that are on the record, I I I yeah. feel justified in everything that I have said. Um, and as a matter of fact, is some you know the I guess in the spirit of these follow up episodes is kind of a behind the scenes you know, a loose conversation in my conversations with David Dobbs, it led to this interview. I mean, this, this was a, this was a hostile conversation at first, Yeah. but I, I do have to give Dobbs credit because when I laid out to him, I'm like, look, yes, I have been harsh with you, but let me tell you why. And I sent him an email bullet pointing all this. And I said, you know, I have, I have researched this stuff thoroughly and this is what I found all these things. I have asked you several times for comment. You have not given me another side of the story. So you tell me if you were researching this and this is what you came up with, wouldn't you think the same thing? And all of a sudden it flipped and I I have to give him credit for it because it flipped. And he said, he actually apologized to me and said, all right, I'm sorry. I I do see your point. uh, And I would like to respond. And then actually after a few emails, he got on the phone with me and we chatted for a few minutes. And, and, you know, he told me, we, I mean, it, to the point where we actually joked about it a little bit, you know, he's like, is this the Bob right. that called me a psychopath and an asshole? I'm like, yeah, that's me. So, so you know, <laughs> uh, uh, right. but what, what I can tell you is what David Dobbs told me on the phone. And, and I, and I do not know the man. I, I, I know the record and I'm, and I'm clearly right. not a fan of the record, but what he told me on the phone was give me some time to look into this. If Edward Eights is innocent, I don't want that on my conscience. And if if he's innocent, then I want to help you. And then let's get him out of there. As a matter of fact, he said, if he's innocent, then you know I want him out of there. We'll pay him the money and get him out of there. I don't want an innocent guy in prison. I cannot vouch to whether or not he was genuine when he said that. But he, at this point, what are what are the options to you know for us? To just say no, you're an asshole, so you can't do that. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. If 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 he genuinely wants right. to. Take a real, uh, and I'm not saying just to believe me, but to take an objective look at this case, and and if he sees the same thing that we're seeing and is willing to help us, well, then God bless him. Let's let him in and do it. And that's I know a lot of right. listeners were 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 pissed that he kind of put off the interview. And and Mike and I have already recorded the second half of this episode, so I talk about this in detail later. Um, but but just mm-hmm. as real brief, while we're talking about this. For the guy that has to produce this podcast every week, and especially for the guy sitting over there that has to edit it every week on a, on a tight schedule, <laughs> Hi, uh, <Mike. laughs> um, 
it, it's it's a real pain in the ass when you know when you when you were told yeah we'll do it next week and then we you know we plan we we set a rundown up for that week's episode and we're ready to go and then you know hey Dave you ready to do this Wednesday you know what I'm still researching I need another week and it's like shit right. you know that I think psychopath asshole so that's, you know <laughs> yeah that that's an yeah that's normal you know it's like breaking news you know what do you do you get everybody scrambling and changing what what was written for the news that day right so, right exactly thing. but the reality of it well, is if if that's really what's happening and again I don't know if that's really what's yeah. happening but if that's really what's happening if he's really wanting to take more time to research before he goes on the air. The, the, number one, I understand it, and two, I can respect that. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Right now, he's exactly. saying. Right now, he's saying next week uh, that we're probably going to try and do the do the interview. That's the last last I heard from him. So at this point, I'm I'm still hoping to take him at his word, and hopefully, we'll we'll have that interview next week. Well, at some point, you have to hope that they are actual human beings, and you know, and, and I, I would think I think it's like a hundred percent of the these guys cannot be prosecuted or thrown in jail even for clearly prosecutorial misconduct. So why they wouldn't want to support it is beyond me. It's not like they're ever going to go to jail. They're never going to be tried. They're never going to be prosecuted for now. But you know what? Five years from now, that law could be changed. So if you know you have some skeletons in the closet, you would think they'd want to clear that up. Right. Before, at some point, we say, you know what? You're not allowed to break the law and send innocent people to jail. So... I'm hoping that some of these people are actually going to grow a conscience and say, you know, these are human beings with children and families. Right. And, 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 and the, rea- the right thing. Right. And the reality is we're, we're seeing signs of life. You know, we saw a glimpse of it with Kerry Max Cook case when uh, Bingham yep. went in and agreed to vacate his conviction without, without opposing it. You know, he did, you know, then in turn oppose the actual innocent. So it's, you know, it's not, you know, he hasn't turned around and become this great saint. But there was, right. there at least was that that light in the tunnel where it's like, okay, I and that was one of those things that we discussed back then, back in June when that happened, where you know, the, I know Carrie was upset about it uh, for for various reasons, yeah. and and I didn't really know what to think yeah. about it, but I have to at least admit, you know, he he Bingham didn't have to do that, you know, he could have went in there and fought him tooth and nail, and that's a hard case to win. So hopefully, right. uh, you know, for those of you that are prayers, pray for those of you that are happy thoughters, happy thought. Uh, let's, that's, uh, <laughs> because, because the reality is what we want, you know, what are we fighting for? We're fighting for truth and justice and we're fighting for exactly. system, for systematic reform. And, and the, the best way to get systematic reform is to all get on the same team and work with each other, not to keep bashing our heads against each other. So hopefully that's where we'll end right. up. Start with the evidence. <laughs> yep. All right. Thanks, Christy, so much for your call. I appreciate it. It was a great call. And uh, maybe we'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Have a great night. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Those were some great calls. And I want to thank all of you who called in this week. And now we're going to move on to the email, Twitter, and Facebook segment of the show. But before we do that, we're going to hear a quick word about our sponsor. Since that was such a good episode with Chris... People had a lot of comments and positive things to say about it, but we didn't get so many questions. Chris pretty much covered everything pretty thoroughly, but I do have this email from Trisha from Washington State. Trisha writes, Loving the new music, but what's going on with Johnny Rose? Will we be going back to his music or sticking with the new stuff? Okay, thank you, Trisha. That's actually a great question. And the short answer is, unfortunately, no, we will not be going back to Johnny Rose's music. But the good news is we've got a lot of great new music and we have some new music being written for the show right now. A listener from Nashville, Tennessee named Shane Yoder is writing all new original music for the show. So you're going to be hearing over the next several weeks a lot of different tracks, different scoring music dropped in. Shane and I are kind of experimenting with some of this new music. So we're trying some things out, getting some feedback. And so it's all still fluid and being changed as we go along. As far as Johnny Rose is concerned, I don't want to get into all the details of everything that's going on. There were some licensing issues, and when everything was all said and done with, I just made the decision that I didn't want to continue going forward with that relationship. It's not to say anything bad about Johnny. I do love his music, and it was a great fit for the show. But at the same time, there are just certain things, and it has nothing to do with money or anything like that, if people are wondering that. But I just decided that he was not the best fit to be working with the Truth and Justice podcast. So. Unfortunately, no more Johnny Rose. 
But on the bright side, we're going to have some great new music. Shane's already working on it. He's got some really cool stuff, and he's willing to adjust and adapt as we move along, which is pretty awesome. Okay, thanks, Chief. You know, lots of people have been asking about what's going on with David Dobbs. Can you fill us in on the status of the Dobbs interview? Yeah, and that is probably the most popular topic over the last two weeks is what's going on with David Dobbs. And first of all, let me apologize for the teaser at the end of episode 240. I know I promised at the end of that episode that the Dobbs interview was coming the next week. And all I can tell you is that's because I thought the Dobbs interview was coming next week. So I tried to put it out on Twitter and Facebook and let everybody know that it had been pushed. That's why we had the Chris Scott interview last week. And people have been losing their shit about Dobbs <laughs> not being on the show last week. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're you know, saying he's intentionally delaying and that he's never going to do the interview. And I don't think that's the case. The first week we were talking, David and I emailed back and forth several times. We actually got on the phone. We spoke to each other. And he knows a little bit about the case. He does remember it. But then I sent him a list of questions that I wanted to ask specifically about Ed's case. Before I sent him that, he had told me that he was planning on doing the interview the next week. Once I sent him some interview questions, and these are pretty specific things about the case, he said that he needed some more time to research and dig some things up and read about it to make sure that he's able to answer the questions intelligently. And believe me, I'm well aware that David Dobbs has been the villain of season two of Truth and Justice. Oh, yeah, definitely. And he and I discussed that, and we're both well aware that I'm not a big fan of his, he's not a big fan of mine. However, I do have to say that I have to give him a little bit of credit. I mean, he is willing to come on the show. We spoke with each other. We addressed the names that I've called him and the names that he's called me. We were even able to laugh about it a little bit by the end of the conversation. So in any case, that led into a conversation last week when I asked him what day he was able to record. We were planning on doing it last Thursday. And when I talked to him, he said he needs more time. There's a lot of information here that he's got to go through, and he really wants to be prepared. Now, could this be a dodging tactic? Sure, it could be. But at this point, I'm trying to give Mr. Dobbs the benefit of the doubt. He said that he wants to make sure that he's well-informed before he comes on the show, and I have to respect that. I would want to do the same thing, especially when he knows that he has a hostile audience. He is very well aware of the fact that none of you like him, so he wants to make sure that he has his shit together before he comes on the show. And like I said, I can respect that. During that conversation last week, he said, how about next week? So again, I had said in this week's episode that we would be hearing from him next week. But then when I talked to him at the beginning of this week, he was still doing some research. He had a bunch of meetings going on this week, and he asked to push it to next week again. So at this point, I'm going to stop saying when the David Dobbs interview is coming. He did say he's hoping for next week, so that's the plan, but we'll just have to see what happens. We have tons of stuff going on right now. We've got several interviews. We've got a lot of information. Plus, we have that huge box of documents that are hopefully coming any time now from Smith County. So Mike and I are just continuing to plug along and keep putting episodes together, and when the Dobbs interview happens, it'll happen. And it sounds like it's going to be sooner than later, but I don't want to hold my breath for it anymore. We need to just keep moving forward until it happens. Absolutely. Okay, Chief, I've got one tweet I want to read to you from someone whose handle is Awkward Skeptic. Okay. It says, what's the name of the prosecutor who helped get Chris Scott exonerated? That person deserves accolades for doing the right thing. Okay, Awkward Skeptic, that is a great question. And the answer is the district attorney's name is Craig Watkins. And I started to do some research to answer the questions about Craig Watkins. And then Mike had the idea to just call Craig Watkins. Yeah, I gave him a call and asked if he wanted to do an interview, and he was more than willing to. Yeah, so instead of me telling you more about Craig Watkins, I'm recording this before we edited that. So I'm guessing it'll be about 10 to 15 minutes when we're all done. But I have a very short interview with Craig Watkins where he will explain what he did as the prosecutor and district attorney for Dallas County and how the Conviction Integrity Unit came to be. So here's Craig Watkins. Okay, I have Craig Watkins on the line here, and all of you heard Craig mentioned by Christopher Scott in his interview. Craig Watkins is the one who formed the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas County and was responsible for Chris's exoneration. And Mr. Watkins, I know you're a very busy guy, so first I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thanks for having me. A little background, Chris. Could could you could you let our listeners know a little bit about you? I know that in 2006, you were the first ever African American district attorney in the entire state of Texas. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, yeah, um, I was the first, and um, seems like a long time ago. 
Yeah, and the thing that amazes me is how this can be possible in Texas for you to be the first ever. You know, we're not talking about the 40s and 50s. I mean, this was this was just 10 years ago. Prior to that, there had never been an African American district attorney. I was just I was just flabbergasted by by that statistic when I saw it. Yeah, I was surprised by that myself. I didn't know that until um, when I was inaugurated and uh, uh, the presider over the ceremony was Senator Rush West, and he had pulled the, the stats on DAs in Texas, and he made it known that I was the first, and I didn't know that. So what was your background uh, leading up to that? I mean, obviously you were an attorney. Um, yeah, I was an attorney. I never worked for the Dallas County District Attorney's Office. However, I tried on three occasions. I was just not successful. Uh-huh. When I look back, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I would have been trained under that thought process that was not conducive to providing adequate legal protection to the victims of crime and also sustaining a positive look on elected district attorneys throughout the state of Texas and, and more so in Dallas County. There was a saying here in Dallas County that um, it's easy for a prosecutor to convict a guilty person, but you have to be very crafty and skilled to to convict an innocent person. So that process uh, was pretty much prevalent uh, in Dallas County going all the way back to the Wade era. So you think that when before you took over that it was it was a known practice that the district attorneys in Dallas County were convicting innocent people? Uh, yes, um, it was pretty much known. In fact, the Conviction Integrity Unit that we created was just the tip of the iceberg to look at um, certain cases from certain positions. So when we decided to create the Conviction Integrity Unit, it was risky. And so just like, you know, you have uh, insurance and insurance companies take calculated risk, uh, is this person less likely to have an accident? You know, they're over 30, and the insurance rate will be a certain amount. In order for that company to be successful, they can't pay out claims. And if they did pay out claims in exorbitant amounts, then they would go out of business. And so we were strategic in somewhat that same way, and we chose something safe. You can't question science. And right. fortunately, one of the good things that Dallas County did that other counties throughout the country didn't do is that they kept the DNA evidence. And so we were able to go back and test that evidence and make a determination as to whether or not the person was truly guilty or was he innocent. And so that basically got the ball rolling for us because we were successful on pretty much oh, well on every DNA case that we brought to the court here and then to the uh, you know criminal appeals court. And they pretty much rubber stamp. No, I don't want to say rubber stamp, but you know, we had legitimacy with the courts. And uh, they knew that if we brought a claim, it, it was pretty good claim on our behalf. That gave us the ability to look at other areas. And therein lies Christopher Scott, you know, photo identification lineup. So he was the first non-DNA case that we actually reviewed and thought that it was a good case. That identification was pretty much suggested. And so, you know, we you know, went further than just DNA. We went to uh, eyewitness identification. And so Christopher Scott was our first. And fortunately, uh, not only did it pay off for our office in that we were able to um, advocate um, one small element of criminal justice reform with our lawmakers in Austin. And so what they decided to do in Austin is to require all police officers or arresting agencies have a policy in place on how they do lineups when before there was no requirement. So it benefited us from that standpoint. And it also benefited us because Christopher Scott, since he's been out, you know, he's basically continued with what happened to him uh, and made a difference and to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. And uh, even also going towards looking into certain cases that he may be made attention of through his organization. Now, uh, when I did, we had a relationship with Scott's organization. So if they brought us a claim that they had looked into, then we would take a look at it. Now, after I left office, I think that all went out the window. You can just look at since I've been gone, there, there's never been an exoneration. So that question, that was a question for the answer there. 
as you said, since then, is the Conviction Integrity Unit still up and running since you left, or did they just completely do away with it? No, it's. Um, I mean, it's still there. Um, I don't know um, where it is in basically looking into claims of innocence. Okay, and you said there's been no exoneration since you left. Now, during your time with the DA's office, uh, you had, I think, was it 34 exonerations that you were responsible for? Some of those were before me. Okay. Um, but roughly, it was, I can't remember the exact number, um, but for the short time we were in office, the eight years, it was, you know, I, I believe, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but I, I believe it was in the high 20s. Okay, during the time you were in office, and none since then. When you decided to form the Conviction Integrity Unit, I mean, it sounds like you were aware of the systematic issues in the Dallas County District Attorney's Office, and so you created the Conviction Integrity Unit. Did you have much kickback from that, or how was that received? Well, let me go back a little bit. Uh, My whole reasoning for becoming DA was to basically be a voice for criminal justice reform. You know, I had a platform to talk about that. And one flaw I saw, and it was simple to me, is that, you know, I had ran for DA in 2002. I came within 10,000 points, and then, then I, I ran again in 2006 and won. And so one of the claims to fame that all the individuals that I ran against was that they had tried so many cases, there were trial lawyers, and such and such. So choose me because, you know, I've tried this many cases. Well, the elected DA basically is not what you see on TV. Like the elected DA is in court every day. It's impossible. You know, there's a staff of 500 individuals within the DA's office and roughly 250 lawyers. And so those 250 lawyers that work for you, yes, they go down to trial. They do trials. Mm -hmm. And they're adequately trained to do that. But from an administrative standpoint, I'm the voice of the office. So I chose to devote my time to basically looking at issues within the criminal justice system as a whole, not just in Dallas County. So, you know, I think one of the good things about being African-American is that I had a first eye view of the failures of the criminal justice system. And so I brought that mentality and thought process uh, into the DA's office. And so we were just tipping the iceberg with the criminal um, conviction integrity. There was so much more that we were planning uh, we didn't foresee that we would have lost that election, but unfortunately we did. So uh, going forward within the next election cycle for the district attorney's office, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. If some of the plans that we had started to put in place, which one that got uh, no, notoriety was a convinced integrity, but there were so many others that we were trying to achieve. There was not much pushback. I mean, they wouldn't do that. You know, publicly, but I'm sure privately, they had questions about it, concerns about it, and they were the thought process. And even I had to get funding from the commissioner's court to do it. And one commissioner blatantly said, well, that's the job of the defense attorney. And I'm thinking, well, no, it's not. And in fact, this this commissioner was actually a lawyer. And so it was surprising to me that he had that thought process because it clearly says in our statutes that the job of the district attorney is not to convict, but to see that justice is served. Right. And justice means that, you know, you convict the guilty, you have to be punished, but also if there is a wrong done, you make sure that justice is served and that citizen uh, who lost their lives, spending most of it in prison for something they didn't do, that's the justice piece. Well, uh, I, I want to take Eric. I know, I know you're a busy guy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. But I I, I re- first of all, I want to really commend you on 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 taking the approach that you did with the DA's office there in 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 seeking true justice rather than just seeking convictions. You you are a rarity in the district attorney world, from what I've seen, uh, not just in Texas but the United States. But it's it's refreshing to talk to someone who is has been really working to make sure that justice is served. So. First of all, just I want to commend you on that. Well, I appreciate you uh, interviewing me. I, I always look forward to the, these type of things. Well, that's great. Well, uh, good luck in the future. And uh, do you have any plans to, to run again for the district, district attorney's office, or you've kind of moved on from there? Well, I don't think my wife will let me. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I spent a lot of years working for the government. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of better places to be. Yeah. 
All right, Mr. Watkins, I will let you go. And thank you again so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Okay, I hope you all enjoyed this very first follow-up episode. And as I mentioned at the opening of the show, these will drop every Friday morning at 6 a.m. And the normal routine will be to do the call-ins on Tuesday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So I hope you're all enjoying these. I'm enjoying having someone to talk to with me. Yeah, it's been great being on. I hope we have uh, many more of these to come. And I hope you guys like Mike because you're going to be hearing more from him on Fridays. Hey, that'd be great. I didn't ask you if you liked Mike. I asked if they liked Mike. Oh, right. <laughs> and of course, I'm just kidding. Mike is here with me working 60, 70 hours a week in our little studio. And he does a lot of the behind the scenes work for the shows. And he's also been doing all the editing and scoring of the episodes, too. And I think you're doing a great job, Mike. Thanks, Chief. Before I let you guys go, there's one other thing that I wanted to announce. For any of you listeners who are on Facebook, there is actually a free Ed Eights Facebook page. Listener Amy Vasifdar, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, actually put this page together. And Kim, Ed's wife, is actually one of the administrators on the page as well. It's a place for everyone who is supporting what we're doing here and is supporting Ed to get together and discuss the case and just have a place to socialize about the case. So please go like the free Ed 8's Facebook page and interact there and get involved and meet some other people from around the world who are helping to support this cause. Other than that, I think we're done. Yeah, that about wraps it up. Okay, so hopefully you guys will all tune in for Sunday's episode, episode 242. For all of you follow-up listeners, a little sneak peek for you. In this week's episode, we're going to break down how Ed actually got indicted. And also, we're going to discuss a new document that we found buried in these piles of documents that we have that is going to blow Francis Johnson's alibi out of the water. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Executive producer is Michael Bussing. Opening music in today's episode was To the Top by Score Squad. All of the other music in today's episode was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And of course, thank you to our sponsor today, Mac Weldon. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, next week, if you want a question read on the air in the follow-up episode, use the hashtag 242. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Mike Bussing. And I'm Bob Ruff. And this has been Truth and Justice.